I have something on my heart that I'm not smart enough to get out is the problem. <laughs> I, uh, I know what God is showing me, and I know it's in His Word, but sometimes it's hard to get that across to other people. And so we're going to take the next two weeks to just try and show a little, a little bit of that, open up some things that maybe you aren't too familiar with. And it's hard to break this up into two weeks because um, it, it's such a deep concept sometimes that it can be hard to, to grasp because there's so many verses and so many things. But I just pray now that the Holy Spirit is just going to fill this room and will open up your minds and hearts to be able to receive what He has for you today because um, uh, I know I'm not a good enough speaker and I'm certainly not powerful enough to give you that understanding, but I know that the Spirit can. And last time I was here, we had talked about uh, some of the biblical festivals, focusing on Passover. And we, we saw how Jesus fulfilled Passover perfectly, to the T. I mean, every little thing, things that you didn't even realize they did on Passover, Jesus was doing, and that's why it's recorded in the Bible. And not only did he die the very day of Passover, but he rose from the dead the very day of the first fruit festival, three days later. He also then gave the Holy Spirit the very day of Pentecost, Shavuot, it's called in Hebrew. And so the festivals aren't there in the Bible for Jews. Those festivals are there because they are pointing to God, to Jesus. And to get to know Jesus on a deeper level, sometimes we need to see what he was doing and why he was doing it in the New Testament. He didn't come and say, okay, now that I came, these are over. He didn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, he fulfilled them and says that they will continue into the end. So today I want to talk about the fall festivals, and we see three of them here, but we're really going to focus on, on tabernacles. These three happen in 15 days. On the first day of the seventh month, which is about our September-October, the trumpets begin, the Feast of Trumpets. Ten days after that, we have the Day of Atonement, which is like Judgment Day. Now, the trumpets is, is basically like the Lord returning. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, about the Lord returning. When? At the sound of the last trumpet. When the trumpet sounds. And, and that's what's being symbolized in this festival. And, and I'm not going to have time to talk about that one. That's a whole other two-week thing. Then there's the, the Day of Atonements. That's Judgment Day. Ten days later, and then five days after that, we have Tabernacles. We're going to focus on this Tabernacles to show you uh, just kind of what went on. Now, if you want to know just scripturally, you can read a little bit about it in Leviticus 23. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Nations. Why is it called the Feast of Nations? Well, it's very important because the Day of Atonement, five days before this, has been viewed as a, a national day for the Jew, the Jewish Day of Salvation in a sense. However... On the day of tabernacles, we see that the Gentiles, foreigners and strangers, are welcomed into their sukkah. What's a sukkah? It's a tabernacle. The word tabernacle is the Hebrew sukkah. And it started because when Israel was brought out of Egypt, they were commanded by God to build these things every year, these little sukkah, these hut-type things, like a tent, you might say, that they would go live in for a week. And they could welcome in foreigners and strangers during that time. 
So that's one reason it's called the Feast of Nations, is the Gentiles are welcomed in. But I want to give you the spiritual understanding of that. As we see in Romans, it says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, he says that there's going to be tribulation, wrath, and anger for everyone who does evil. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. You see, the gospel came to the Jewish person first. Jesus said, I only came to the lost sheep of Israel. But when the Jews rejected the gospel, he opened up the door to allow the Gentiles, the strangers, the foreigners to come in. Okay? Now, what I want you to understand is God didn't reject the Jew. He had opened up, he turned to the Gentiles... But there is a time in the future that the Bible is very clear about in the end times when that Jew is going to have that door opened up to them and the Spirit will open their eyes and they will look on the one whom they have pierced, weep and mourn. And I want to show you that we ought to be praying for that day because it is for your benefit that that happens as well. Look, at, it says in Romans eleven fifteen: For if there the Jew rejection is the reconciliation of the world. In other words... If because they rejected the gospel, God turned to you, Gentiles, and you were reconciled, he said, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When the Jew is, when their eyes are opened up and they are accepted, again, what does that mean for you? Life from the dead. You may say, hey, you know, I'm saved, great, it's all here. No, there's more to come. There is something that we should be looking forward to because it comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Not only was the gospel come first, but also the wrath of God will come first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, as we see here. Now, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering or Sukkot. As I said, Sukkot just means tabernacles. As a matter of fact, we'll talk more about this next week, but Jesus was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's called the ingathering because it is a time of a harvest that this takes place. Which is going to give you indication of what God is trying to tell us with this feast of tabernacles. And by the way, the reason we're talking about this now is because we're, we're entering upon this festival, uh, this 15-day period of these three festivals here in September. Okay, That's the, why we're doing that now. You can go back and read in Exodus chapter 23, and there are three festivals the Jew was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. The first one was Passover. You had to go there. Two and a half million Jews would fill the city on that day. It was happening during the harvest of barley. Unto me the year thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee. And it goes on and it says then, and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors. The next feast is called Pentecost or Shavuot. This one took place at the wheat harvest. And the third festival is this one we're talking about today, tabernacles, which took place at the fall harvest of the fruit, or specifically, especially mentioned in the scriptures, grape harvest, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is at the end of the year. And it talks about gathering in the labors of the field and whatnot. We see scripturally all around 
that God is referring to the harvest as when he comes back and he is going to take his believers and judge the unbelievers. Matthew 13, he says the harvest is at the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. We read about it in Revelation chapter 14. He says the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he even makes reference to what kind of harvest. Are we talking you know, wheat? Are we talking barley? No. He says, for her grapes are fully ripe. The Jews have always understood this, that the fall harvest, the fall festivals, are pointing to the Lord's second coming. Do you guys want to know more about the Lord's return? Then we need to be looking at a deeper level in the scriptures. We need to understand what Jesus was telling us in these festivals. Because that's why he gave them to you. It isn't a Jewish thing. Never are these called Jewish festivals. They're called the Lord's festivals. Look at here. Isaiah 24. So will it will be on the earth and among the nations, as when gleanings are left after the great harvest. I, I don't have time to talk about all these verses, so you can go back and look at them deeper to see that we're talking about end times and the Lord's return. And, and watch for this. Just go do a concordance study on grape harvests and see how many times that this is in reference to the Lord's return. Th that means the Lord is giving us an indication of when he's coming back. Not the day or the hour, but an indication of timing. Same thing in Jeremiah 25. He says, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. Now here's what I want you to understand. This time when the Lord comes back, sometimes we as Christians think, oh, it'll be great, the Lord's going to come back, woohoo! Yes, that's true. But I also want you to understand, this is a time of deep sorrow and mourning prior to that. Because the Lord is going to go against the land of Israel. There's going to be this great battle called the Armageddon battle, and when we go to Israel, we're going to see that valley that this is supposed to take place in, the Megiddo, uh, at Megiddo. He says, he will shout like those who tread the grapes. The picture that God gives us with the grape harvest most often is this. It's the treading of the grapes. The treading, the judgment of God. And the blood being poured out. We see in Joel, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. It was always God's plan to dwell with Israel. And tabernacles isn't just to say, okay, the end. It's also trying to tell you that God is going to tabernacle with you. He does right now. He lives in you. You see, the tabernacle was a picture of heaven, but he also has you and our spirits as a picture of that in a sense too, because now he lives and dwells in you, the most holy place. You have become that tabernacle. And there are verses that will talk about that. But I want you to see this. Remember when Israel left Egypt, it was the time of Passover. And when they left Egypt, the Bible tells us where they camped in all these days. And we see that it was 50 days later that they arrived about, which puts it at Pentecost or the Feast of Shavuot. So when they arrived at Mount Sinai, it wasn't some just random day. It seems it was a very important day. As a matter of fact, on that day, did you realize that in the New Testament, when that happened, 3,000 people were saved. But in the Old Testament, here where it happens, 3,000 people were killed. And then, we see that Moses is commanded to go up the mountain for 40 days, where he meets with God. And for 40 days, he spends with God. He's given the Ten Commandments. 
He comes down the mountain and he sees that those rebellious Israelites had built a golden calf. We're worshiping it, celebrating it, calling it Yahweh even. And so Moses is so upset, he throws down the Ten Commandments, they break, which there's all kinds of things with that too, but he spends the next few days then rebuking the Israelites, crushing up that thing, they pour it in water and they make, they make the Israelites drink the water with this ground up golden calf. And then Moses has to go up that mountain again for another 40 days. Now, by the way, 40 days twice, that's 80 days. Roughly maybe 10 days or so that he was there rebuking the Israelites. That means roughly 90 days. Well, guess what's about 90 days from the Feast of Pentecost? The Day of Atonement. I believe it was probably the very day of atonement, that Moses was coming down that mountain a second time, bringing atonement. Remember what he was doing up on the mountain? God was saying, I've had it. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses is a mediator for them as a Christ symbol. And he says, no, Lord, don't wipe them out. Blot me out of the book of life. And Moses comes down and he brings atonement. With him he also brings the tabernacle. And then, remember, this is only a 15-day period then from, from atonement, trumpets, atonement. And, that, and remember, trumpets, by the way, what was going on in the mountain when Moses was up there? Trumpets blowing out from the mountain. So we've got this 15-day period all being fulfilled right in that short time. Moses comes down the mountain and they start building the tabernacle that he brought the blueprints down of. Probably on the Feast of Tabernacles. Why did God do that? Well, he tells us in Exodus 25, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God's intent was so that he might dwell with them. That was the goal. Now, we know today in the New Testament, we see that that tabernacle is no longer there, but he now dwells within us. That's God's intent. But I want you to understand that there is a time coming in the future that God is going to dwell with us in a better way than what He's even doing now. Now remember, when I'm talking about sanctuary, tabernacle, temple, we're talking about sukkah. What these Israelites are building every year is a model of. It was a shelter. When these guys would go out and camp, they were having to put their full trust in the Lord that the enemies that were around them would not be able to consume them. They were having to live by faith in that sukkah. The wild animals wouldn't be able to get at them because they were being sheltered by the Lord, His sukkah. In Zechariah chapter 14, this is not talking about something that happened in the past. This is talking about future events. And it's very clear about that in Zechariah. I'm just going to give you the highlights. It says, when the Lord comes back, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And then it, they're going to split in two. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. So we know this is future. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem. Remember God said that he was going to bring nations against the land? When is that going to happen? Well, we see right now that this is being talked about in the Armageddon battle. 
we see that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles. Yep. Unbelievers are going to go and worship God at the Feast of Tabernacles every year. I don't care if you're an atheist or not. You will worship the Lord God. At the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. You see, God is going to be a sukkah in Jerusalem. And, and, and I don't have time to get into all the details, so I'm just going to give you the, the main idea here. God is going to gather people to, to Jerusalem. It says that in umpteen scriptures in the end times. And it says that he is going to be a cloud over them, just as he was in the wilderness over that tabernacle. He was there to protect them. I believe what's going to happen in the end is what the scriptures say, that God is going to gather people to Jerusalem and he is their sukkah, their protection that will protect them as all the nations come up against Jerusalem. God is their sukkah. And when that time comes, all these nations are going to have to come to the sukkah two tabernacles to worship him. It goes on though, it says, whoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. It's not going to rain. For any of these nations outside of the sukkah that are coming, they don't get rain if they don't come and worship God. Now I'm not going to claim I understand all of this. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. But look, it says... This shall be the punishment of all of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, you will celebrate tabernacles. But notice that this is the punishment of all nations. This is the other reason this festival is called the Feast of Nations. It isn't just about the Jew. It isn't even just about the believer. It's about all nations. You'll either have the sukkah of God's protection or you are going to have the judgment and wrath of God in the grape harvest. Those are the things that are being pictured here. Look at what Revelation 21.3 talks about. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. It's coming. This is what's going to happen when the Lord returns. We will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in a way that you have never celebrated before. You see, the Day of Atonement and Trumpets, those are some solemn festivals. Fasting, prayer, and repentance. But this is a festival of extreme rejoicing. This is the highlight of their year, is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, by the way, just an interesting point here in Second Peter, we see, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Just when were the disciples eyewitnesses of the coming of the Lord and his majesty? Well, there was only one time, and that was at the transfiguration. Remember they went up on the mountain and Jesus, the, the light just enveloped them and Moses and Elijah appear, which by the way are the two witnesses that appear. And those two witnesses appear 
Jesus said that there will be some among them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, he took them up on this mountain. And that's when it appears. And what does Peter say? Oh, it is good for us to be here. Let me build three sukkahs for us. Three tabernacles. He's literally saying, I want to build three sukkahs. Why? Because Peter knew that the coming of the Lord is attached to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Three sukkahs. One for God, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But as I said, this is a time of rejoicing. We read in Leviticus, in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, again we see when this is supposed to be, on the first day you're to have a Sabbath and on the eighth day a Sabbath. Now wait a minute, this is a seven-day festival, but they're saying there's an eighth day. How can you do that? Well, it's kind of the same thing with Passover. Passover is a one-day thing, but they've attached seven days of unleavened bread to it. This is a seven-day festival, but they attach one day at the end. I will talk about this one day tomorrow, or, or next week, I should say. And I, I, I cannot wait for this eighth day. I'll tell you what, that eighth day is going to be a time of rejoicing. I am pumped for this eighth day. And, and we're going to talk about that next week. But he says that they're going to wave branches of palm and then rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. I want to show you what the Jewish people did at this time. During this time, those seven days, they would light this huge lamp that was 75 feet tall, actually two of them, these 75 foot tall candlesticks, basically, on the hill of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as I said, is already a hill. Now you put a 75 foot candlestick up there and light it, you're going to see it for a long ways. On the top, they had these gold bowls and the priests would have these seven-gallon jugs filled with olive oil that they would climb up this ladder and pour the oil into those gold bowls. For a wick, they would take the old garments of the priestly garments, rip them into strips and use that for the wick. And then they would light this for those seven days. For this reason, throughout Jewish history, we see, and other history, that Jerusalem was known as the light of the world because it was seen from great distances. It is not an accident that it is during this festival, the Bible clearly tells us, that Jesus comes and claims to be the light of the world. We read about it in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It is this very festival, John 8 tells us, that Jesus says this. The Jews knew what he was saying. He was trying to tell them something. The other thing that they would do is the high priest and one of his assistants would walk out the water gate of the city out to the pool of Siloam. Now that water gate is going to be important as we'll talk about next week. But for now, just know they go out the water gate to the pool of Siloam where they were to take out of that pool waters that were called living waters. The high priest would have this gold bowl or gold vase, fill it with water from the living waters, take it back through the water gate. Now as they come in, they will be singing and rejoicing, waving palm branches, singing the Hallel, which I'll talk about in a minute. But when they got to the temple, the high priest would pour out into a silver vase that water. 
the assistant would have wine in his vase and he would pour it out and it would overflow. It's kind of interesting too that it would be water and blood that would be the testimony for Jesus as John talks about. And it was water and blood that flowed out of his side. There's much more to that, but that's all I'm going to give you for now. But anyway, they would sing. As they're coming, as these priests are bringing these things into the city, they're singing the Hallel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Let's see what they were singing. They would say, The Lord is my strength and has become my salvation. Do you know what the word Yeshua means? What Jesus Jesus is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua means the Lord saves. Here we're seeing God is my salvation. Literally in Hebrew, Yeshua. As these priests are coming into the city, they're crying out Yeshua's name. It says the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. We also see here in Isaiah, they would sing Isaiah because it talks about tabernacles as well. They'd say, behold, God is Yeshua. Yeshua, I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Yeshua. Therefore, joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. They're coming into the city crying out the very name of the one whom they are about to reject, the living waters from the wells of salvation. By the way, this day that they would pour out the water was only on the last day, the seventh day of the festival. Look what John says here again in chapter 7. It says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. We're going to talk about that next week. In the last day, this is the day they're pouring out the water. That great day of the feast, notice it's called that great day, this was huge for them. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not an accident. You know, guys, sometimes we read, in our westernized culture, we read the Bible and Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, I'm the living waters, and we think, oh, that's cool. He was just picking out some symbols. You know, kind of like saying, I am the red of the husker's shirt or something. I, I don't know, just pulling out some crazy thing and then making some spiritual message out of it. No, he was referring to verses that those Jews had memorized. Those Jews knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they wanted to kill him. You guys ever read the scriptures and, and Jesus says something and then the Bible says, and they took him you know, out to stone him and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. And you're going, gee, I mean, Rough crowd, what did he say? It's because they knew their scriptures. And they knew what he was claiming to be. That's why they were saying blasphemy all the time. Because he was claiming to be those living waters. Guys, next week we're going to dive into this even deeper and you're going to be amazed to see what Jesus did in fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. And you're going to see why those guys were so upset. Even, even down to what he was writing in the dirt. 
That was all in fulfillment of prophecy. But before you can get to this Feast of Tabernacles of great rejoicing, I want you to understand something. Remember, we're talking about a short period of time. You have to go through this time. Trumpets and atonement. This is a time of great sorrow. A time of repentance and confessing of sins. The Jews have this day, this festival of trumpets, actually starts 30 days early. It's called the time of Elul. And it is a time of mourning and repentance and confession. You add that with those 10 days of awe, which is even more solemn. You have 40 days of repentance that is to go on before you're going to get to this time of tabernacles. And I'm going to propose to you, in preparation for this time of of tabernacles, and we're all excited for the Lord's return, I'm going to suggest to you that before we get ready for all the excitement, or maybe really to get ready for all, all of the excitement, we first need to be coming up to this altar. And we need to be bowing down and repenting and confessing our sins. And we need to be getting right with God. I understand that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're saved. But you know what? Being saved comes with some tremendous responsibilities. His house is to be a house of prayer. You see... I don't believe that we as Americans as a whole in the Christian church are praying like we ought to be praying. I don't believe we're repenting and confessing our sins like we ought to be confessing and repenting. I want to just show you that I personally believe that God is about to bring against the land those, that judgment, the, the grape harvest, you might say. I want to show you, just statistically, what happens. We, we see today in our country the Muslims are growing. Did you know, and this is coming from the CIA World Fact Book, as seen in Peter Hammond's book, Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, The Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat. I do believe that the religion of, of Islam is a threat to not only this country, but especially to the nation of, of Israel, into the gospel. As long as the percentage of Muslims in your country is under 2%, they will be considered a peace-loving minority. And these are all the countries which that is true of. And that's exactly how they're viewed. Oh, they're not radical. It's just a peace-loving thing. You know, Allah and God, they're the same thing. We hear those kind of things. That's just outright heresy. Allah has no son. We see in our movies today in Hollywood, many of the movies even are trying to portray them as a peaceful religion. And it's just a small group of radicals out there. In my traveling, I've met a a ministry, a man who runs a ministry called Pablo. He's an ex-Muslim. And I asked him, I said, are Muslims, the peaceful Muslims, really as peaceful as they say? Uh, This is just his answer to me. As an ex-Muslim who is now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He said they are more violent than you can even imagine. At 2 to 5%, they begin to proselytize from other ethnic minorities, recruiting from jails and among street gangs. And guess what? These are the countries in which that percentage is true, and that is exactly what we see happening. Even in our country, especially in the jails, we see it going on. 
From 5% on, they begin to push for the introduction of halal, which is basically their clean foods, even putting pressure on supermarkets to make sure that halal foods are there. These are the countries in which that percentage is there, and that's what's happening as well in those countries. Once they reach uh, that point as well, they will work harder to get the ruling government to allow them to rule themselves within their own ghettos, they call them, within their own communities to to, uh, exercise Sharia law and those type of things. As we get further into 10%, increasing in lawlessness, they'll begin to complain about their conditions to get rights because of that. Non-Muslim actions will offend Islam, which will cause rioting, just as we saw in Amsterdam with the cartoons, as we see in other countries, as we see here going on. You don't dare speak against Islam without there being extreme rioting. After reaching 20%, there will be all kinds of rioting and jihad militia going on, as we see in Ethiopia with that percentage. As you go into 40%, widespread massacre, chronic terror attacks, as we see in these countries that have that percentage. From 60%, there will be unfettered persecution of non-believers of all other religions. And there is a tax that is placed on the infidel, which is anybody that's not a Muslim. And here we see that happening in those countries. When they reach up to the 80%, daily intimidation and violent jihad will go on, as we see in these countries. And when you reach 100%, it is to usher in what their period of peace is called. It's supposed to be perfect peace. Which is ironic, because these are the areas where there is 100% Muslim control, and they're the most peaceful countries in the world, aren't they? Well, their explanation is one of the reasons that they do not have peace is because Muhammad cannot bring peace. Allah cannot bring peace until the very last Jew is wiped off the face of the earth what it says in the Quran. You see, the Jew is the worst of all the infidels. And earlier in another sermon, we had talked about how Israel is only here by a miracle of God as these nations are are totally surrounding them. Israel is surrounded by their enemies and God continues to protect them. But you know, I believe, as I said, that the Muslims are going to play a part in this end time tribulation period. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, that God prophesies in end times that the Jew would return to their homeland. We saw that in 1948. But not only would they return to their homeland, they're going to be these bodies, but they're lifeless, dead bodies. But then we see that God breathes the spirit into these dry bones as God gives Israel life again, and they will look on the, the one that whom they pierced and weep and mourn as they are welcomed and see that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And it says then, in chap, the very next chapter, after Israel receives this spirit, that there's going to be a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And it says, in days to come, O Gog, which most people think is Russia, I will bring you against my land, Jerusalem. Against them, remember? But where is God's people going to be at this time? They're going to be in Jerusalem under a sukkah, protected by God. And he says, that so all nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. 
Many Bible scholars believe that in end times, it's the Muslim nations that are going to join with, with Russia to come against Israel. As you're about to see here soon, that it's not long, the Russian army is almost 40% Muslim already. Okay? Let me just ask you a couple other questions because it's relevant to our day. Today in our news, we see all kinds of arguments about the Muslims building this mosque on ground zero. Should they be allowed to do that? Or are they claiming victory here in America? I, I'm just going to show you what the Quran says. I'm not telling you. Here, the Quran says, build a building over them. Their Lord knows best about them. And those who prevailed in their affairs said, we will surely make a mosque over them. Now, that isn't a direct commandment, you know, to claim victory on places when you, when you build a mosque. However, not only do we see it being talked about in the Quran, we do see as well that it does seem to fit throughout history that it is a type of claiming victory. We know that the, the most famous mosque is the Dome of the Rock that we'll see in Israel. It is built upon the old temple of God, the tabernacle of God. In Istanbul, that mosque is built over St. Sophia's Basilica. We see the one here in Spain built over another Christian cathedral. Why do they build these things over holy sites? It's a question that the Quran may answer. How about beheadings? You know, it's interesting because we talk about them being peaceful and all those kinds of things, but even the imam says, oh, beheadings are not mentioned in the Quran at all. And we've got liberal professors in universities like Georgetown University agreeing, saying there's absolutely nothing in Islam that justifies cutting off a person's head. They're a peaceful religion. Those are lies. Outright lies. Saudi Arabia was the capital of beheadings. Let's look at some of what the Quran says. Of the infidel, they'd be executed or crucifixion, the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides, or exile from the land. Here of the infidel, he says, smite ye above their necks and smite all their fingertips off. Strike off their heads. Murder those of the disbelievers. Kill them wherever you find them. But the Quran doesn't say anything about that. Yes, it does. You know what else the Quran says? Muhammad said this. Muhammad said, you can lie to your enemy in order to deceive them, to, to gain victory over them. I used to read Revelation in 20 and find it kind of strange, almost archaic. When it said, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. I used to think, why weren't they shot? I mean... Cutting off heads, we don't do that anymore. You're right, we don't. Again, I don't know, but to me, I think that this is a possibility that this is referencing some of the religious practices of the enemies of God. That's why they will, they will be beheaded. I want to close with showing you just a, a clip here of what's going on in the world today. And so it's a sober reminder of what we're dealing with. 
And I'll just make a, just a couple of short comments after it, but watch this. For a culture to maintain itself for more than 25 years, there must be a fertility rate of 2.11 children per family. With anything less, the culture will decline. Historically, no culture has ever reversed a 1.9 fertility rate. A rate of 1.3, impossible to reverse, because it would take 80 to 100 years to correct itself, and there is no economic model. That can sustain a culture during that time. In other words, if two sets of parents each have one child, there are half as many children as parents. If those children have one child, then there are one fourth as many grandchildren as grandparents. If only a million babies are born in 2006, it's hard to have two million adults enter the workforce in 2026. As the population shrinks. So does the culture. As of 2007, the fertility rate in France was 1.8, England 1.6, Greece 1.3, Germany 1.3, Italy 1.2, Spain 1.1. Across the entire European Union of 31 countries, the fertility Is a mere 1.38. Historical research tells us these numbers are impossible to reverse. In a matter of years, Europe as we know it will cease to exist. Yet the population of Europe is not declining. Why? Immigration. Islamic immigration. Of all population growth in Europe since 1990, 90%. Has been Islamic immigration. France, 1.8 children per family. Muslims, 8.1. In southern France, traditionally one of the most populated church regions in the world, there are now more mosques than churches. 30% of children ages 20 and younger are Islamic. In the larger cities such as Nice, Marseille, and Paris. That number has grown to 45 percent. By 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim. In just 39 years, France will be an Islamic republic. In the last 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million. A 30-fold increase. There are over 1,000 mosques, many of them former churches. In the Netherlands, 50% of all newborns are Muslim, and in only 15 years, 
half of the population of the Netherlands will be Muslim. In Russia, there are over 23 million Muslims. That's one out of five Russians. 40% of the entire Russian army will be Islamic in just a few short years. Currently in Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns are Muslim. The government of Belgium has stated one-third of all European children will be born to Muslim families by 2025, just 17 years away. The German government, the first to talk about this publicly, recently released a statement saying, the fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. Its downward spiral is no longer reversible. It will be a Muslim state by the year 2050. Gaddafi of Libya said, There are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe, without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50-plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. There are currently 52 million Muslims in Europe. The German government said that number is expected to double in the next 20 years to 104 million. Closer to home, the numbers tell a similar story. Right now, Canada's fertility rate is 1.6, nearly a full point below what is required to sustain a culture. And Islam is now the fastest growing religion. Between 2001 and 2006, Canada's population increased by 1.6 million, 1.2 of those immigration. In the United States, the current fertility rate of American citizens is 1.6. With the influx of the Latino nations, the rate increases to 2.11, the bare minimum required to sustain a culture. In 1970, there were 100,000 Muslims in America. 
Today, there are over nine million. The world is changing. It's time to wake up. Three years ago, a meeting of 24 Islamic organizations was held in Chicago. The transcripts of that meeting showed in detail their plans to evangelize America through journalism, politics, education, and more. They said, we must prepare ourselves for the reality that in 30 years, there will be 50 million Muslims living in America. The world that we live in is not the world in which our children and grandchildren will live. The Catholic Church recently reported that Islam has just surpassed their membership numbers. Some studies show that at Islam's current rate of growth, in five to seven years, it will be the dominant religion of the world. As believers, we call upon you to join the effort to share the gospel message with the changing world. This is a call to action. A sobering reminder of what I do believe is God calling us to repentance. This week, as you go home, what I'm calling you to do is I want you to get down on your knees and I want you to examine yourself and I want you to be praying. The Muslims aren't the enemy. They're the ones we are to be out evangelizing to. But the enemy will use many of them, I believe. We need to, I, I really believe as a church, and I don't mean this church, I mean as a church throughout the world, be preparing ourselves. I don't want to leave you without hope, because remember, there is hope. And the battle has already been won. But I also want you not to be naive of what's going on around us so that we, as I see happening in the churches throughout the country, continue to live in Jesus' name, calling out, Yeshua, we've got the living water, but have no idea what that means. That we aren't obeying God's word. You may say, repent of what? I don't know. You know. God has put the law in our hearts so you know what's going on in your life. You know what's going on around us in this country. You know what needs to be addressed. We just have to do it. We have to address it. And so this week, I'm not trying to send you home being all happy. I'm trying to send you home with a somber warning in a time that there is a time to rejoice and there is a time to be somber. And I think that it's time for America to be somber. It's time for America to get down on our knees and call out to God, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And so we can rejoice, but we need to keep it in perspective that there are some serious times that lie ahead. And so next week when we come back, you're just going to be amazed to see the rejoicing part of it. So I'll uh, pass it over then and let you close us out.
We want to, as he said, pick up where we left off last week. And this is just a challenging message because it's so new to so many of us that it's, as I said last week, difficult for me to be able to get it across because we're dealing with such a topic that's, that's so large that I can only give you a little snippet. And I just have to trust that the Spirit is going to give you understanding and, and, and give you a zeal for His Word so that you will dive in more. Because today I'm going to probably raise more questions than I'm going to give answers. But at the same time, I'm hoping that those questions are going to drive you to the Scriptures. And that they're just going to give you an understanding of maybe how to look at those Scriptures so that we can understand them better. Last week I talked about tabernacles in the sense that Jesus shows us that the tabernacles, the festival of tabernacles, is a model of end times. And I really believe that the Lord is going to come back probably around that time, which still, by the way, I'm not going to get into all the details, but you still can't tell you what day or hour the Lord's coming back because the calendars have been all messed up. But I do believe that these festivals are indeed, um, as the Scriptures tell us, foreshadowing huge events, just as Passover foreshadowed Christ's uh, death, that first fruits foreshadowed His uh, resurrection, because he rose on that day, and as Shavuot or Pentecost foreshadowed the Holy Spirit being given because it was given on that day, the fall festivals are clearly showing us things about his return. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand his word, we're not going to be able to see the signs always. And it also kind of robs us of some of the blessings of the things that we have to look forward to. And so I want to just show you today what we have to look forward to and how Jesus was pointing us to these very things. In Isaiah 4, 5, it says, Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night over all the glory will be a canopy. Last week we talked about at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things that the the Jewish people would do because God commanded it in His Word was that when He rescued them from the Egyptians, they were to go out and every year during this time, at this date, on the... 15th day of the month of of, uh, Tishri, basically our September, October. Now, it doesn't mean the 15th of our month because they're on the lunar calendar, we're on the the, uh, solar calendar. But they were to go out and they were supposed to live in a sukkah. It, it, It foreshadowed God's protection of end times. You see, when they went out there, as I said last week, they had to trust that God was going to take care of them. God would be the one who would deliver them from the wild animals, from their enemies. They didn't have walls to protect them. God was going to be their wall. We also see that that sukkah is really a tabernacle. They were supposed to tabernacle out by themselves. But then God also was picturing that same thing within the tabernacle, that He would be the protection as they camped around the tabernacle. But we see that very foreshadowing here as well about end times. It says in Isaiah 4 that in the end times, he's going to come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the same thing as Jerusalem. 
specifically, though, where the tabernacle was built on Mount Zion. And he says, over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day. Does that sound familiar? Remember how God in the tabernacle in the wilderness, he would be a cloud during the day, and at night there was a fire within that cloud, so it looked like a pillar of fire. And here he's saying the same thing is going to happen, except for not in the tabernacle, but in Jerusalem, there's going to be a canopy protecting you. A big part of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we talked a little bit about last week as well, was that it's the Feast of All Nations because all nations are going to be brought in. And so we see all nations coming to Jerusalem for what? For the Feast of Tabernacles to be protected in a sense. Now we see that, as I mentioned, there was a seven-day festival with an eighth day that was tagged on to the end. Why? Because an eighth day, as Jewish reasoning has been, is a new beginning. You see, you have seven days of the week, and then it doesn't start with another day. The eighth day is really day one again. It starts over. And likewise, I believe on the eighth day, we're starting over. Kind of back like it used to be before the fall, but even better yet. And so it's a new beginning that we're seeing on the eighth day. I think 2 Peter is really kind of predicting or talking about that eighth day when he says we are looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We're looking forward to the end of the time. Wherein the heavens being on fire will be dissolved and the elements shall melt away with fervent heat. You see, this earth we're living on, it's going to be gone. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, a new beginning for us. And that's what we are to look forward to. We want this to come, this new beginning. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, the year of Jubilees, in the Feast of Tabernacles, so we're getting a specific time being laid here. At the end of every seven years, At the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, what are we supposed to do? When all Israel is to come and appear before the Lord, in the place which God shall choose, thou shalt read this law. The Hebrew there is Torah. God is going to read the Torah before all Israel. In their hearing, gather the people together, men, women, and children, thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear, hear what? Torah. That they may learn... And fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this Torah, this law. A few things I want to point out here. First of all, as I said, this is at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is supposed to take place. And what they are to do is to gather to Jerusalem. That's the place that God would choose. They will gather to Jerusalem and then the law will be read. And not only will they hear the law but they are going to learn it, understand it. And then not only will they learn it and understand it, but it will go from here to here as they do it. That is what was supposed to happen. That every time, somebody at the the certain time, this Feast of Tabernacles, the law will be read so that you can learn it, hear it, and do it. Well, 
Remember, the foreigners, too, were brought in. Remember, last week I talked about the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Nations as well. And the reason that is was because the Gentiles are welcomed in. And I'm going to show you many scripture verses that show us that in end times, that's exactly what's going to happen, is that the Gentiles are going to go along with the Jew to Jerusalem to be underneath that sukkah, that canopy of protection. Okay? Well, at the end of seven years, why at the end of seven years? Well, I believe, because of the patterns throughout all of Scripture and so many other things that the Bible does indicate, that we will be here for 7,000 years before the eighth day. You see, every day of creation patterns and models a thousand years of history. The first day of creation, God separated light and darkness. We see the first thousand years of history dominated by, basically, Adam and Eve separating good and evil. The second day of creation was separating waters, and the second thousand years of creation was dominated by Noah and the separation of waters. And we can go through all seven days. But what we see is there would be six days and then the day of rest. Likewise, there will be 6,000 years... And then, a, I believe, as Hebrews 4 talks about, a Sabbath rest for all God's people. And then after that, you will have an eighth day, a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And this pattern is seen throughout all of Scripture. We've talked about that on, on, on previous times that I have been here. But I want you to see that I think that's why it's at the end of seven years when the Feast of Tabernacles is to be celebrated, that this is all going to happen. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is a model or a foreshadowing the Lord's return. Isaiah chapter 2, he speaks of this time in end times. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. All nations, again the Feast of Nations, will flow to Jerusalem. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth Torah, the law. He shall judge among the nations. He shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So again, we see that what's supposed to happen in the last days, that Yeshua Jesus is supposed to gather people to Jerusalem so that he can do what? Give the law so that you might hear it and do it, to understand it. You know, today we have this idea that, hey, we're done with the law. Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He's taken away the law. I challenge you to show me that in Scripture anywhere. This is a cultural, westernized view of Christianity, but it is not in the Scriptures. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And you may say, yeah, he came to fulfill it, so now it's done with. No, it isn't. Show me that in the Word. I'll show you all kinds of places where he says, it is not. You are still to obey. If you love me, you will do what I say. Go read 1 John. And you tell me that we're done with the law. 
But today we have this idea that the law is a bad thing. You see, we're weak if we obey the law, right? Romans 14, you read Romans 14. That's another homework assignment for you this week. Go read Romans 14 and it seems to suggest in our westernized culture, our worldview, that we read the scriptures through, that the weak person, it says, you know, is one of those that considers one day more honorable than another. The weak person is the one that eats only vegetables while another man will eat you know, meat. For whatever reason, in our westernized view, we automatically read those verses and we think, oh, the special day is the Sabbath. Oh, oh, eating vegetables, that was a Jewish thing. No, eating vegetables was not a Jewish thing. They could eat meat. And, yes, they did have a special day, but so did all the pagans around them. As a matter of fact, they had more special days than the Jews did. Remember, Paul is writing to the Gentiles in Rome for the book of Romans. He's not talking about Sabbath days. He's talking about these other days. And, but my point is this. That we today think that if somebody is walking in obedience to God's word and they want to follow the law as best as they can, not to earn righteousness, I'll, I'll get to that, but we think that they are weak. The strong ones are those who are free from the law. That's really what we say, isn't it? Now, keep in mind, the weak and the strong, that's the title of that in the NIV, but the word strong isn't there anywhere in Romans 14. By the definition that we, with our worldview, have read those, that, that chapter in Scripture, we would have to say Jesus was weak. Yeah, because He honored the Sabbath. He considered that day special. And today, we, in our Gentile, westernized reasoning, we say, hey, well, Jesus got rid of the Sabbath. Well, I didn't see him do that. Others say, hey, well, the early church worshipped on the first day of the week. Well, first of all, I really don't care what the early church did. I care what the Bible says. And second of all, the early church did worship on the Sabbath. Go look at how many times Paul is going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. But what they've done is there are like three verses, three or four, that say on the first day of the week they met. If you have a computer that has any Bible program on it that can show you Greek, I challenge you to go look at that because it does not say on the first day of the week. It says on one of the Sabbaths. The Greek word is sabbaton. That's the Hebrew word for Shabbat. And there's different, when it says on one, literally the Greek is on one Sabbath. You see, there are are cardinal numbers and there are ordinal numbers. You know, there's like one, two, three, four, as if you're counting. And then there's like, well, first, second, third, like in order. The word that's used there in the Greek is a one, two, three. It has nothing to do with order. So it isn't even first, it's one. On one Sabbath, they met. That's what it says in the Greek. Don't believe me. Go check it out. But we have translated these things because we have a bias against God's people. 
Mm -hmm, We do. Against God's chosen people, the Jew. Now, I'm not saying every Jew is going to heaven or anything like that. I'm not even saying you have to be Jew. And you certainly, because you obey God's law, doesn't make you Jewish, does it? But yet, that's the idea that we have today. You see, many people view me as being legalistic. Because I love the law of God. I love it. But I don't love God's law because it makes me righteous. I love God's law because it's God's word. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word that became flesh. So for you not to love the law is for you not to love Jesus. You can't love Jesus and hate the law. But today, again, we have this negative view of the law. We have an idea that those Jews in the Old Testament, the Israelites, were saved by what? By obeying the law. No, they weren't. Nowhere does it say they were saved by the law. You see, God commanded them to do certain festivals and certain rituals to point them to what Jesus would do. But those things did not forgive them of their sins. The Jew in the Old Testament was saved by grace, just as you and I are today. The law never saved a single Old Testament saint. Not a one. It only pointed to Jesus, the Word. But we have this idea, Old Testament is Old Covenant law. That's how you used to be saved. No, it is the same by faith, Abraham believed. When was he, it says, was it before circumcision or after circumcision that God made the covenant with Abraham? It was not before, or I'm sorry, it was not after, but before he was circumcised that he received the covenant. Romans chapter 4. You see, God never intended the law to be a means of salvation. Never. Unfortunately, some of the Pharisees viewed it that way. Some of the Pharisees added new things, new teachings to the Word. But the law was always a result of grace. When God delivered the Israelites... From Egypt, He said, now I delivered you. I have shown you my grace and my deliverance. And because of that, thou shalt not. Because you are mine. And you know what? That's what it says in the New Testament. Because you love me, you will do. If you love me, you'll do what I say. In John 15 as well, we see it talking about the vine and the branches. And he says, if you, you, know, if you remain in me, I will remain in you, those, that whole thing. But he also goes on to say that if you obey my commands, I will remain in you and you will remain in me. And I have told you this so that your joy may be complete. He didn't say if you obey my commands so that you can earn your righteousness. But he says, so that your joy may be complete. God's law is for you to be blessed. Not as a five-step rule or a ten-step rule to get to heaven. But they're guides for your protection. That's what God's law is. And yet today in the church, we've messed up the law to make it to be something that's, oh, that's legalism. 
That's works righteousness. No. It is a response to God's gospel. A response to His love. That's what the law is. We see here as well in Micah, this very thing being talked about. He says, In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. Again, do you see the pattern here? In the last days something's supposed to happen. Jerusalem is to be exalted and the people are to flow to it. Many nations shall come, because this is the Feast of Tabernacles when it's going to happen, the Feast of Nations. And they will say, come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways. Who's going to teach us His ways? The God of Jacob, in the last days, will teach you the law, and we will walk in His paths. For the Torah shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Guys, we have messed up theology. I really think we have messed it up. And I think one of the reasons is because we have a bias against God's people. As I said, because we obey doesn't make us Jewish. I'm not trying to be Jewish. What I'm saying is this. We have defined words and doctrines in the church today by using our culture and our current conditions and our desires to interpret them. I'll give you an example here of what we don't do. We don't use the Old Testament as a dictionary to define terms in the New. You know, in the creation ministry, which I speak on most of the time, One of the things I talk about is the meaning of anything is tied up in its origin. If you want to find out the meaning of gay, you look it up in a dictionary, you see it didn't mean homosexual. It meant happy. But to understand that, you need to understand how the word was first used. Then you get the definition of the word. Likewise, if we do the same thing with New Testament words, we find out that we don't always view the New Testament doctrines the way they probably were meant to be understood. We talked about some of those last week when, when Jesus was calling himself the light of the world or the living waters. We just think he's being you know, symbolic when in fact there was deeper Old Testament meaning to that. The Jews, as soon as he said that, knew exactly what he was talking about because they were taking his words and defining them by their understanding of the Old Testament. Think about it. Was there ever a New Testament believer that was converted because of the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? No. On the road to Emmaus, uh, we see as well, or, or Jesus, when he opened up the eyes of those disciples, what did he use? He used the law and the prophets. Paul used the law and the prophets. Every person used the law and the prophets to open up the eyes of the people, didn't they? But today, we always use Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, especially John. Now again, the law and the prophets aren't complete without Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today, I just want to show you, we've kicked out the law and the prophets to just use the new. And we can't, because these books aren't separated. They're single, it's a single unit. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does that mean? 
We look at that today, and Jesus was just picking out some terms. Jesus is the way. Well, that means that he's the only way to get to heaven. He's the, you know, the truth. Well, I mean, everything else is a lie. Jesus is the only truth. He's the life. Well, that's, you know, we get eternal life because of Jesus. that's what we think, right? But to mean the meaning of anything is tied up in its origin. Did you know that if you look at the word, and, and this is your other homework assignment, to understand this better. You look up in your concordance the word way. Jesus is the way. Remember, that's what the early church was even called, was the way. Let's go look and look it up in the dictionary or your concordance in the dictionary of the Old Testament to see what that really meant. And did you know most often that that word, and especially when you look at the Hebrew word that's there, it's, it's very clear. But you'll be able to see it in your concordance. That the word way in the Old Testament is most often translated in reference to God's law, walking in God's law, His word. Look up the word truth in your Old Testament. Look at the concordance, the dictionary of truth will show you that most often the truth was God's word, God's law, again. Look up life. You will see that it was God's word that gave life, God's law that gave life. Turning away from God's law is what gave you death. You see, I believe what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was saying, I am the word, the word, the word. Isn't that really consistently what John 1, 1 says in the beginning was the word, and that word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus is the Word. And for us to say, oh, that Old Testament, you have just kicked out Jesus. A part of who He is, who He came to be, who He came to model and foreshadow. Who He was, really, not model. He was the Word. And that is how He can teach us His ways because He is that Word. Nehemiah, we read about Nehemiah after the Babylonian captivity of, of Israel. They were brought back to Jerusalem. And when they were brought to Jerusalem... They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says that they gathered before the water gate. Last week, if you were here, we talked about at the water gate was the one that they walked out to draw the waters out of the pool of Siloam that was called the living waters. And then they would take it and pour it out on the altar. And that was the very day Jesus called himself the living waters. And to a Jewish mind, he was claiming to be the law, as you'll see here in a moment. But anyway, the water gate, they gathered at the water gate. They brought the book of the law of Moses. They read from it when? Upon the first day of the seventh month. This is that period when we're starting. First, it's the Feast of Trumpets, and then it moves to the tabernacles. So he read therein before the street, uh, before the water gate, from morning until midday, before the men and the women. And those that could understand in the ears of all the people were attentive. Let me ask you, do you see any, can you imagine a church today? gathering from early morning till noon for Pastor Brett to get up here and read from the law of Moses. I mean, we're talking Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, and you guys being attentive. Can you imagine? I'm probably having a hard time keeping some of you awake right now, let alone for that many hours to read from Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they were attentive. Because they had a love for the Word. 
they knew this wasn't just some book. These were the very words of a living God. They had a respect and a reverence for the word that I don't think we can even imagine. And yet today we throw our Bibles around and we just, it's like another book almost with a message that's truth. When in fact it's saying, it is truth. And it says they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense, the meaning of it, and caused them to understand. Now keep in mind, what did Micah and Isaiah say was going to happen in the end times? God was going to come, they're going to gather to Jerusalem, read the law so that they can understand it, so that you can follow it. And here is what's going on in Nehemiah. They're gathering in Jerusalem, reading the law, giving the meaning so that they could understand it. And it goes on, on the second day we're gathered together, they do it again, and they read that they were to dwell in booths coming up in a, in a short period of time on the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're going to do that as well. They start building their booths here. And it says also day by day from the first day unto the last day of the festival. Remember, this is a seven-day festival. He read in the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly. Again, we see the eighth day being foreshadowed and we see that the law is being read during that period for seven days. Sunday is bad enough for some of you, isn't it? Seven days of reading the law. And they were attentive and joy-filled because of it. You see, a Jew, throughout all Jewish writings, we see that they believed water was a symbol of the law of God. A symbol of the law of God. You see, yara is the word for to flow, to flow out from. Torah is yara with a T in front of it. And so the Jews have viewed the law as something to be poured out. I think that's why those living waters being poured out is very important because Jesus was pouring himself out. He was saying, I am the living waters. I am the word. And if you come to the word, me, you will have life. You will never thirst again. That's why we see him as well being talked about many times, Jesus' return as the former and latter rain, the latter rain in end times. The, the, the Jews have always viewed the fall festivals that we're talking about here as the latter rain. He shall come down like rain, it says. After Jesus, as we talked about last week, remember he, on the day that they would light that big uh, candle, that 75-foot candlestick, where the... Israel or Jerusalem was called the light of the world. On the very day that he lights it, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. By the way, light, guess what that means if you look at the dictionary of the New Testament? The word of God again. Okay? And then we see as well that after he claims that on the seventh day of the festival, when they're pouring out the waters, the living waters, Jesus says, I am the living waters. After that... Let's look what happens here. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this, saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Some thought Jesus was just a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? They were doubting it. Then 
answered them, the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. See, they didn't know the law of God. The Pharisees didn't know the law. They thought they did. They thought they were masters of it. Jesus tells them, no, you're not. You, you totally missed it. First of all, by the way, Jesus never rebukes the Pharisees ever for doing the law. There are times that he rebukes them, but there are only things that you can't find anywhere in the Old Testament. They were their own the traditions that they added to the law. Okay? Well, the Jews didn't know the law, so Jesus is going to have to fix that. I'm going to propose to you that you and I don't know the law today. We've got a messed up view of the law because we've made it legalistic and something that we're supposed to stand away from or else people are going to look down on us. I think we've got a messed up view, and so Jesus needs to come on that eighth day so that he can instruct us in the law, so that we might understand it, so that we can walk in his ways, like the Bible said is supposed to happen in the end times. Jeremiah, I believe, prophesied that this would happen, that those Pharisees would reject the living waters. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. He's saying the pastors, the pastors of these people didn't even know the law. These are the ones that were supposed to be instructing Israel, and they didn't know it. I'd suggest to you that we're not much different today. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. I believe that as the Jews saw this, that it holds no law. You see, these people don't know the law. They don't know the fountain of living water. And as a result, they have built up their own righteousness. Since the Pharisees did not know the law, they rejected the living waters on the seventh day of that festival. Let's see what happens on day eight. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, right after this. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And by the way, I know this is right after because the previous verses are saying on the last and greatest day of the feast, which is the seventh day. Now, after that, early in the morning, he comes again to the temple. All the people come unto him. And he sat down and he taught them. Remember what Micah, Jeremiah, all these people are saying? It's supposed to happen at the end times. I know I'm repeating this a lot, but I want you to get this. In the end times, when the new beginning, the eighth day is supposed to happen, people are going to gather to Jerusalem so God can instruct us in the law. What does he do? He gathers them to Jerusalem at the temple, and he teaches them what? The law. Watch. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But, what do you say? What sayest thou? And now Jesus is going to instruct them. Moses said this, but what do you say? And now he is going to clear up what Moses said. 
He's going to explain what Moses meant. Because you see, Moses' words were my words, and so I know what I meant. I will tell you what I meant. The Pharisees, they, they got this, their own view of what Moses said, their own interpretation, their own, their own theology. But Jesus says, let me tell you what I meant. And so what he does is he bends down. And as he writes something, look what it says. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience. A day earlier, these people are about to kill him because they say, you know, they reject the living waters. And now, they're being convicted? Their conscience is being pricked? Because he explained what Moses said? He gives them the law. And one by one, they begin to leave. Leaving only the woman there. Don't you find that interesting that the same people that wanted to kill him one day earlier are now feeling guilty? Doesn't that sound like what's supposed to happen when the Lord returns? It prophesies in Zechariah. We also see it mentioned in Revelation. That when the Lord returns, they will weep and mourn for the one whom they have pierced. When the Lord comes back, their conscience is going to be pricked because He is going to explain the law to us. And he's going to say, you Pharisees have been twisting this law around. The law is good if it is handled properly. What did he write? I don't know exactly. You know, some people have proposed that it was the names of their girlfriends. (laughs) Here's this woman and he's bending down writing the names of the girlfriends and one by one the Pharisees are seeing that and thinking, whoa, (laughs) we better get out of here. We don't know what he wrote, but I do believe it was something to do with the law in connection with their names. I think that this really was prophesied in Jeremiah 17. Look, he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. That's exactly what happened on this day. They that depart from me shall be written in the earth. He wrote something in the earth. I don't know what it was exactly, but it says, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. That's what these Pharisees had done. They had forsaken the fountains of living waters the very day before this. And now Jesus writes something in the earth and they are convicted and ashamed. It says this in Hosea, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Again, what's that mean? We usually think, hey, because we're not reading our Bible or we don't know enough about the Bible or, you know, whatever. We don't know enough up here. But I'm not even going to skip anything. Let's just continue reading that verse. Because we always quote it there and we stop in the middle of a verse. It goes on to say, Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law, Torah, of thy God. My people are destroyed for lack of Torah, is what he is saying. You know what, I I think that you guys can see it in the churches today, that the churches, God's people are being destroyed for lack of Torah today. I think that deep down we know that the church is praising God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. As I said last week, I don't know what things are going on in your life, but 
I know that those things are addressed in the Word. We need to know the law of God to really make the gospel be something we're going to appreciate. You know, Ray Comfort and Way of the Master, he talks about this all the time. We have to be convinced of the disease before you're going to want the cure. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, it says in Psalms. I think that we are being destroyed because we don't know Torah. Look what A.W. Tozer said. Great man of faith. He says, have you ever noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. I believe that with all my heart. I think that's what the Scriptures say. God said when He gave the law, He says, you'll be blessed if you do it, you'll be cursed if you don't. Again, He's not talking just about salvation. We're talking, see, salvation comes and then we happily obey the law because we want to. You know, it says in the end times in Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself that they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. In the end times, Gentiles are going to come unto the Jew, he's saying here, from the ends of the earth, saying, take us with you. We know that God is with you. And God is going to, where do you think they're going, by the way? Ah, the nations are going to Jerusalem. So that God is going to instruct them and say, this is what the law was for. This is the law. Ephraim shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. What will you do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? Guys, I think the Gentiles, see Ephraim is what's used there, but Ephraim many times throughout Scripture is synonymous with Gentiles. In Genesis 49, when Ephraim is being blessed, he says, I will make you a multitude of goyim. The Hebrew word is Gentiles, often translated nations. You see, there were 12 tribes of Israel, but when Solomon died and his son became king, they split Ten tribes went one way, known as Ephraim, or Israel, and two others went this way, called Judah. And these guys disobeyed God's law completely. That's why the Assyrians came and conquered them, and they never got to come back to Jerusalem, ever. When Jesus came, well then, first of all, these two, they, some kings were good. They were taken to Babylon, but 70 years later were allowed to come back. They were known as Judah. And they came back to Jerusalem. So when Jesus came back to Jerusalem here, you know, 2,000 years ago, most of the people were from the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, from those two tribes. Most of Ephraim had been assimilated in with the culture. They became, some of them became known as the Samaritans, which these guys hated because they had become so corrupt. They were known as the Gentiles. Now, there were some from Ephraim that came and joined Judah. We know that. 
But what I want to show, in general, I think many times, that's why we see throughout scriptures this difference. And you start reading the scriptures with this understanding, you're going you're gonna to grasp a lot more in there. Okay? So just kind of watch for that. Finally, the last thing is, I just want to show you just as a point of, of remembrance here, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus was born, more than likely, on the very day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We know this from the scriptures. It's very clear. Zechariah was a priest and Luke 1, 5, 9 tells us here the course, the period that he was to be in. He was in the 8th division of Abiah. We know because of records when that was. Basically, the period here of Savan 12 through 18. That's Pentecost. He was serving at Pentecost. That means the angel of the Lord came and said, you know, to, to Zechariah, you're going to have a child at Pentecost. Well, that's important because, you know, 40 weeks is the time period to have a baby. That means then when Elizabeth has a baby, it would have been Passover, that John the Baptist was born. Now, we know that Jesus was six months younger than John the Baptist. The Bible tells us that. So, six months later is Hanukkah. That's when Jesus would have been conceived. Then you have to have another 40 weeks or nine months for a baby to be born, and that puts you at tabernacles. Which is why there was no room for the inn when Jesus is coming. Why? Not because of the tax that was being imposed, but because this is a festival when two and a half million people are required to come to Jerusalem. And many of the taxes were given at times of festivals because they knew they were coming to Jerusalem anyway. So that's why there was no room in the inn. And what God did is he arranged a birthday party for him. On the Feast of Tabernacles, when these people, as we talked about last week, are singing Psalm 118, saying, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. And the salvation of the Lord was being born. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become Yeshua. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and are become my salvation. Yeshua, literally. God not only has arranged a birthday party, but he's arranged a second coming party in the Feast of Tabernacles. And if we don't understand this, if we don't start reading our scriptures with the mindset that this is one book, not two, we're going to miss out on a lot of blessings. I really believe that. Ezekiel and Zechariah, as I said last week, both will tell you that you will celebrate this festival when the Lord returns. Zechariah 14, when the Mount of Olives is split in two, an end time passage here, he says you will go to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because there it's where you will be protected and we're going to be singing praises to God. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Because of Yeshua, the Lord saves. And He is going to clean up the mess that we have made. He will instruct us in His Word so that we will know it. And you will do it. And you will not be considered weak, but strong.